Welcome to the Leadership Window podcast with Dr. Patrick Jinks. Each week through a social sector lens, Patrick interviews leaders and experts and puts us in touch with trends and tips for leading effectively. Patrick is an LSI certified leadership coach, a member of the Forbes Coaches Council, a best-selling author, award-winning photographer, and a professional speaker. And now, here's Dr. Patrick Jinks. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Leadership Window. Thanks for joining us. We're going to get right to it today. I have uh, reached out to these two friends and colleagues and amazing leaders, and they have said yes. It was so exciting. This is just one of those shows where I'm like, you know, this would be such a cool episode and such great content for people. I wonder if they would do it. I didn't really wonder. I knew they would. Uh, I have with us Nicole Lamoureux, who is the Chief Executive Officer for the National Association of Free and Charitable Clinics. And I have Susie Foley, who is the President and CEO at one of the 1,200 local free clinics around the country here in my home state of South Carolina in Greenville. And uh, these two ladies, oh, I met them, well, I've known Susie now for years through an organization that we're in and have talked about on this show a lot, the Blue Ridge Institute. Nicole, I met you, I don't know, was it three, four, five years ago at an event in Greenville with the, with the clinic? And we've been able to work together on an amazing project that I wanted to talk about today, the Roadmap to Health Equity, that uh, the National Association has led in partnership with a couple of other um, national entities and a number of the local free clinics, including Susie's organization in Greenville. So I'm going to let both of you, you know, say more about yourselves and your organizations that I didn't take the time during this brief introduction. And, um, and then I'll let one of you just tell us about the project, what it is, why it's important, why anyone should be interested beyond yourselves. And, um, we're going to talk a little bit about what it has to do with leadership as well. This is a podcast about leadership. So we'll talk about the leadership challenges and how the, um, how the initiative is a leading initiative and the group is a leadership entity, but also how the individual leadership roles take, uh, take control and, and drive this thing forward. So ladies, both of you, a huge welcome and thank you for being here. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So who wants to go first and talk about yourself? I know that's really what you came on to do. (laughs) Give me time to talk about myself. Tell me a little bit more, Nicole, about um, about the National Association and about you, how you came to this work. Sure. The National Association of Free and Charitable Clinics, there's actually 1,400 clinics now across the United States of America. We, we've grown. Uh, we serve 2 million people annually with 9.6 million patient visits. And that is done through a volunteer and staff workforce of over 200,000 medical and non-medical providers. So when you're looking at the safety net sector and you're looking at who is caring for the uninsured and underserved in our country, the free and charitable clinics are a critical component of uh, the safety net. Sometimes we we say we're America's best kept healthcare secret, though we don't want to be America's best healthcare secret at all. I think that um, one of the things that brought me to this job was that my, my I myself was diagnosed with cancer at 33 years old. I had to clean out my 401k um, in order to pay for my uh, services. And I um, had the best insurance you could think of. So I asked my parents, what do people who are uninsured do with uh, when they get a diagnosis like this, or if they just had a question about diabetes or hypertension? And 
given that I have two parents that are both teachers, their answer was, why don't you research that? Which was not really the answer I wanted at the time, but the best thing that they ever told me. And then I was lucky enough to find free and charitable clinics like Susie and others across the country and lucky enough that they hired me to build up the association. So we started in 2007 with uh, 75 members. One of the founding members was Susie's, uh, and she really believed in this effort that we needed a voice across the country and uh, about $75,000 in the bank. So when you talk about leadership, make sure you check someone's financials before you take a job. That's a good key uh, point to do. Um, but now we're we're ending you know, last year at 1,400 clinics across the United States and a budget about $7 million for the organization. So there's a lot to unpack just in what you all of what you just mm -hmm. said. Let me uh, let me bring out two things and either one of you can comment on this and then we'll get to Susie. The one thing it, uh, that you mentioned is that the national organization started in 2007, I think you said. Well, I started in 2007. Oh, you started. In How old then is the national organization? It was founded in, in 2001 officially, but okay. Susie can tell you that the conversations happened previous to that. I, I believe well into the 1990s, there were conversations. Yeah, there had been informal, certainly networking among free clinics for, for many, many years. I think going back even, even into the 70s, 80s, uh, where free clinics and neighboring free clinics compared notes, got together. About 2000, there was an FDA ruling about sample medications that was going to severely impact free clinics and how we were able to provide medications to our patients. And that's when really the, um, the need and the demand for some national voice to say, look, this is what this means inadvertently, and this is what we need to do to join together. Um, Free clinics have always been very um, independent. You know, we function in our community based on the resources that are available to us and the patients we have, but there's a, a whole lot we have in common. And this one issue really coalesced um, leaders across the country. And there were about a dozen, I guess, free clinics that, that saw the value and said, we've got to have a presence at a national and state level We've got to pull together. We've got to find what our common areas of interest are, and we need to speak with one voice. And I think this whole effort on quality and health equity really builds from that. Well, the reason I brought up the year, the, the newness of the, and even 2001, I would say, is relatively new for a national organization of this scale and scope. People forget, and having come up in the United Way Network, and Susie, you know this too, United Way was local before it was national. And most of these nonprofits that have a national organization, that is the case. And so I always think it's important to point that out, that there were free clinics across the country before there was a national organization. And the reason that's important for the non-informed listener to know is that the, the national organizations of these, you know, so-called charities are not... Um, they're not keeping all the money and, and dictating what free clinics do in their local communities. This is actually driven from the bottom up. And this project is one, as you just said, Susie, a perfect example of why a national organization, something formal for the local clinics to communicate and coordinate and collaborate through is so important. So that's, that's why I asked about the date and why I think that was important. The second thing I heard you say um, and you didn't split the numbers, but you mentioned the number of staff and volunteers. 
And I would just like to pause here and highlight the number of volunteers. I don't know if, you, if, mm-hmm. you, if you've got those separate, but this is what is so unique about the free clinic network is the number of volunteers that make this work. And we're talking about the physicians, the people who are actually, you know, right there on the ground, providing the direct care, not to mention the nurses, the staff, the admin staff. So this is not a heavily staffed, high overhead kind of entity. This is driven by volunteerism, is it not? It is. Absolutely. I think that what we're finding out of that 200,000 volunteer and staff workforce, 127,000 of those individuals are volunteers. Yeah, that's incredible. That's incredible. Yeah. We can talk In about the, the leadership challenges that presents. But yeah. <laughs> In Greenville here, we have um, 300 healthcare professionals that volunteer, and that includes over 100 physicians and nurse practitioners. Mm. That includes over 50 dentists, which is uh, another absolutely key component of what we do and what we yeah. offer for our patients. We have physical therapists, nurses, uh, dietitians. It's a, a wide range and a gamut of volunteer opportunities, as well as non-medical volunteers that help and do what they can. Yeah. And I've learned so much about the network. I've got a couple of other organizations. Susie, of course, I've worked with yours and I've worked with you with your collaborative on this uh, roadmap project. Um, but I've also worked with some rural very rural free clinics who don't have 300 volunteers and, and a hundred and some odd, um, you know, physicians and nurse practitioners. Um, I've, there's a, a, a clinic down in Miami called caring for Miami that I've been doing a lot of work with. They're extraordinary with their mobile dental clinic, uh, just the creativity and the innovation and just the commitment to say, we're, we're taking this to the, this is going to be available in our community and we'll figure out a way to make it happen. So I just, I'm, I'm really impressed with the, with the stuff. Susie, I know a little bit more about you and your crazy driving and your, <laughs> not you, but Pete. Um, uh, but no, t- talk just a little bit about how you came to the free clinic world. I, I love Nicole's story. It's, it's, um, you know, so many people come to this kind of work through personal experience as Nicole has, but what was your journey to the free and charitable clinic world? Well, my, 35 year plus uh, career is in nonprofit management. Uh, initially, as you did, starting in United Way, um, I had been a volunteer and worked with several organizations when we lived in Arkansas when my children were young. And then the opportunity came to move into um, a leadership role with the local United Way there in Arkansas. In 1998, my husband was transferred here to the Greenville area. And through that United Way network, uh, took a position and was able to immediately jump into the community and become involved by um, learning through the United Way system, local agencies. A couple of years later, when an opportunity arose to um, assume the leadership here at the Greenville Free Clinic, I knew from the funder's side that that was a very well-run organization. I knew that it was poised for growth that there really were some opportunities. I knew there was great community support, both hospital systems, lots of volunteers, um, but there was opportunities to take what I have, which is not a medical background, but a nonprofit and a, an organizational background and take the helm and hopefully lead toward, toward some good things and some potential and possibilities. Um, our clinic was founded in 1987. 
we just celebrated our 35th anniversary, and we have come a very, very long way from 1987. Um, initially was open a couple of nights a week. It was line up and be seen by whatever volunteer physician was there that night. We had um, we had uh, pediatricians, ophthalmologists, some internal and family medicine physicians seeing whoever walked in the door with whatever ailment that they had and treating them with samples that that might have been available to us. Um, so in the those years since, we have um, evolved into a very comprehensive health clinic, an important part of the safety net in our community, um, offering primary care, specialty care, um, you name an ology, and we have an ologist. Um, <laughs> we have a full pharmacy. We have uh, mental health. And believe me, during the COVID and pandemic, our behavioral health services were more in need probably than anything else that we were offering, um, but really has evolved into a true medical home for low-income uninsured residents of our county. I think that medical home and, you know, being an integral part of the health community is an important note about the evolution, as you say, about the clinic. I'll tell a quick story. Um, Nicole, I don't know if, if Susie's told you this, but in one of the strategic planning sessions with the Greenville Clinic and their board, we watched a news highlight, a story that the local station had featured on the Greenville Free Clinic. And it was great. I mean, they, it was great publicity. It's the kind of stuff, you know, nonprofits want. Oh, look at this. They did this great story on us. And in it, they highlighted um, one of the patients at the free clinic. And they were talking about this woman's situation and why she goes to the free clinic. But the words they used were because she doesn't have insurance and she lost her job. And I don't remember the whole story, but she has to go to the free clinic for her care. And I leaned over to Susie and I said, I think they mean she gets to go to the free clinic. Absolutely. Not she has to go to the free clinic. And I think that's the evolution that's happened. Certainly in, in Greenville, there are still, you know, clinics, again, like I mentioned, in, in a lot of rural communities that are really struggling to break that stigma of a charitable clinic where the care that we get isn't as good because it's free. And I think that's really the work that certainly Greenville and others have tried to do is no, we're a, we're a, a, an integral quality, legitimate part of the healthcare system here. We just happen to serve this group of people, but the quality is there and the care is there and this is their home. And this is fortunately something they get to come to because of the support of the community. I don't know if you had heard that story, Nicole, but that was, to me, that was the difference that, that we're trying to create here is we don't have to go to the clinic. We get to go to the clinic. Patrick, if I can add just a side note or an addendum to that story, um, because of how she was treated here, because of how uh, the impact that the kindness that she received when she came here for care, she works for me now. The patient that was featured Ooh. in that nurse, in that oh, wow. uh, news story, decided to be a nurse. She wow. is a CMA and she is in nursing school and she works for me now. So uh, couldn't it have really has that. come around <laughs> to, Could not to have really written be that. an even more amazing story. Wow. Absolutely. I say that all the time. I uh, jokingly in the free clinic world in 2017, I broke both of my ankles in one year. And I, uh, 
And I'd like to tell you I was doing something great, but all I was doing was walking. I mean, that's all I was doing. <laughs> but I went to the ER and when I was there, they handed me a pair of crutches and they said, okay, you're a discharged swing. And I thought, if I can't walk on two regular legs without breaking an ankle, you can't give me two sticks and expect me to know how to to use them for crutches. And at that moment, I thought if I went to a free clinic, if I was lucky enough to go to a free clinic, they would have taught me how to use the crutches. They would have asked me how I was going to get to work because I broke my right leg and that was I can't drive a car. They would have asked me if I had enough food. They would have helped me figure out what my next steps were. Did I need a wheelchair? Did I need a scooter? Not mm. to say that they would have had all of those things to give me that day when I walked out. They would have given me, and we're going to use the word roadmap, they would have helped me understand what my choices were and what I needed to do. And I think that's one of the beautiful parts of working with free and charitable clinics is they really do care about whole person healthcare and they really care about the person that they're seeing in front of them. And I think that gives the doctors the ability to practice medicine in the way that they intended and wanted. But it also gives, as you just heard from Susie, the patients leave with such a sense of respect and dignity that they want to be part of the community to help someone else in the community get better and get healthier as well. And that's something that's not just nice and kind, which people like to say, in my mind, that is the key to what needs to shift in a current America healthcare system. We need to put the patients first. And then when we put the patients first, it's that effect that trickles through the entire community that helps everyone get healthier. Wow. Well said. So that's a really good segue into the roadmap to health equity and talk about where, where, so what is it, where did it come from? Just talk a little bit about the, the construct of what is the roadmap to health equity? Sure. Well, in 2017, uh, the national association, AmeriCares and Loyola university and a group of stakeholders of free and charitable cl clinics got together to talk about how to develop a system that would help us grow and measure the quality of care that we're giving at free and charitable clinics on a nationwide scale, but more importantly, how to ensure that all of our patients are treated equitably and that we're helping them grow with their health. And so out of that basic conversation, it has now grown and morphed into the Roadmap to Health Equity program. And it's really looking at reducing the healthcare inequity that we see that many of our patients face in a daily basis and how we at the clinics can better our policies, our procedures, our understandings. We can learn from each other. It's built into collaboratives, how we use electronic health records and patient charts, and how we can measure the work that we're doing in a consistent and consecutive way across the United States of America. So I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit about the inequities, because one of the things, as you know, the word equity is unfortunately has this sort of politically charged aspect to it. And people don't understand, people still don't understand what it actually is but organizations like yours are actually in the data and can define, oh, here's what we mean by inequities and here's how we're addressing it. Um, so I'd like for you to just talk a little bit about that, how this, how your work is addressing inequities. What are those inequities and how does your work um, reduce that disparity? 
Sure. Well, I can speak at the national level, and then I think it's more interesting to hear from from a clinic and how they're doing that and on a day-to-day basis. But we know that LGBTQIA patients receive different levels of care in the healthcare system that we have across the United States of America. We know uninsured people are not do not have access to some of the same exact medicines or same exact uh, treatment protocols if they went to the uh, emergency room as someone who is insured. We also know that Black, Indigenous, and other people of color do not receive the same level of mammograms, say for a Black woman, that a white woman would would receive. Those are all part of um, academic reports and reports that have been done uh, through the federal government. What I think we're seeing at the Free and Charitable Clinic community is not only are our clinics open to the people who need the care that they give, but how do we place them on the level playing field with the other patients at their um, clinic, but also others who are insured in the communities across the country. And so that's what we're talking about equity. Free and charitable clinics have always treated people with dignity and respect. And I would argue have always put equity and equality at the forefront of the work that they are doing. This is just solidifying it in a new and different way that aligns with how the healthcare system is addressing those con- uh, those conversations. Uh, Susie, I'd love to hear how it's impacted the work you're doing at, in Greenville. Well, obviously, poverty and insurance status are key factors in what the potential health outcome may be. But we have seen that those are not the only factors. Um, And and that's the difference that we're trying to make. It is um, almost criminal that a woman who is uninsured is 40% more likely to die from a breast cancer diagnosis than an insured woman. Those kinds of variances in the outcome just should be unacceptable in a a country like ours that has the resources that we do. The fact is they get mammograms later. They often wait until there's a a palpable lump before they seek any uh, treatment or care. It's not preventive. It's not early screening. Um, so the insurance status is is just huge. We see in our community, for example, in about a five-mile distance between two zip codes, that geographic uh, disparities are huge. Uh, there is an 80, well, there is a 20-year difference in the expected lifespan for a man living in one zip code versus a black man living in another zip code. 20 year lifespan difference. Um, Those kinds of of disparities have to be addressed and no one else is doing it at the level that we are for the low income and the uninsured. Um, We have known anecdotally the stories and being able to give very good care and being able to catch things early and make sure that patients are getting uh, the same treatment that you and I would expect going to our private doctors and whipping out our insurance card and and getting whatever the treatment that that is recommended. Um, We've known that anecdotally, but it's been hard to really grasp and get the, the hard, solid data and information and um, validation that comes with saying, yes, we are making a difference and we're making a difference in our communities who are healthier. And I say all the time, you know, you, you may not know our free clinic patient, but you see them every single day. 
You see them at the grocery store, you see them at the restaurants, you see them in your churches, you see them in the childcare agencies. That's who our patients are. Uh, they're low wage earners often who just don't have the types of jobs or the resources to be able to afford insurance. And unfortunately, the current healthcare safety net just doesn't provide for that patient well enough, um, even in spite of efforts to try to increase access to care for, for low-income individuals. Well, all of those are great examples, and I appreciate you doing that because I, I'm, I'm really trying to highlight organizations who are taking this equity concept and demonstrating very concretely, very simply, and it's everything. It's not just race and ethnicity. It's it's all the it's many of the things that you just mentioned, Susie. So it really is. Um, you know what I love about this too is it, it in the national construct, the mission is building healthy communities for all through quality, equitable, accessible healthcare, and in your value statements, you value human dig dignity and access to quality, compassionate healthcare. I'm listening to the two of you talk. I'm going, well, if nothing else, these two are on, I mean, the consistency of <laughs> not just the message, but then this goes back into the roadmap to health equity, which is a metrics project. That's how I would describe it. It is, okay, so we're not just a network of clinics that are there for you, and we've got a doctor there if you need care. We're actually, there's some things that we're actually measuring and um, in particular quality metrics, because again, that's part of the emission construct and the values construct. So talk a little bit about what the roadmap to health equity project is intended to measure. Now, I think I don't remember the number of, of uh, indicators in the framework, but an example of three or four of them, what in essence are you trying to measure throughout the network? Well, there are 15 different measures that are um, optional and are being tracked by the pilot clinics in the project. Now, we are not expected to or required to report on all 15 of those. And if you look at the list, you think, oh, my gosh, you know, how can we ever gather all that information? Um, some are process measures and some are outcome measures. Um, some of the processes for good diabetes control, some of the processes to make sure that there's screening and early intervention for colon cancer, breast cancer, cervical cancer. Um, and then some are actual patient outcomes. Are their blood pressures better controlled um, in a free clinic setting? These are the quality measures that are being used everywhere. It's what our physicians are used to. It's what our hospitals are, are using. It's what uh, Medicaid and Medicare, the FQHCs, they're standardized measures. We're not saying, well, we do this, so we're going to measure it this way. It was important to look at, we need to be able to compare apples and apples. Um, and always with the intent that we have to be combating almost a stereotype that somehow we're less than, that we're not doing as well as other practices, that we're not delivering the same kind of results as a, a private office, when in, in fact we are. Many times we don't have the red tape and the obstacles and the challenge of having to go through those hoops for, for funding and reimbursement. So um, in a very, very novel approach for free clinics, 
we get to do and recommend what the patient needs. Isn't that a novel concept? (laughs) (laughs) Not what we're going to get reimbursed for. What does the patient need? And very often what the patient needs is that uh, surrounding support services. We have mental health counseling. We have diabetes educators. We have patient navigators, community health workers. Uh, I think the free clinics have probably been talking about the social determinants of health long before the rest of the world uh, jumped on the bandwagon of social determinants of health, indicating that food and transportation and language and housing and all these other issues um, are as important as access to care and insurance status. Um, So it has been really important to be able to say, we know anecdotally, and we've told stories, you know, since the beginning of time, but particularly at the state level and for Nicole at the national level, to be able to say, this is why free clinics are important. This is why these changes in, in rules and regulations and changes might need to be made to help them. This is an apples and apples comparison and not a apples and pomegranates comparison, <laughs> just because we're a charity, per se. Yeah. Nicole, anything to add to that? I just think that some of the stories that have come out of the Roadmap program have been amazing uh, for me to see how these clinics have truly taken the measures that that we as leaders came to and said, you know, we really would like to have some of these measures blood pressure, hypertension, diabetes. But then the clinics came back to us and said, we really need to include the patient voice in this conversation as well. Just as Susie was saying, we need to ensure that as free and charitable clinics, we're listening to what our patients need and how they need to be educated. And just the changes that some of the clinics have made and how they're speaking to their patients or how their education systems learn. Uh, We even had a clinic who was monitoring these blood pressure Uh, realms had realized that the way that they were taking blood pressures in having the patient walk right into the room, sit down and take blood pressure, as they started going through the Roadmap to Health Equity program, they started realizing that their, you know, orders for EKGs was so high because everyone's blood pressure was so high that all they did was add five minutes of a wait time to the um, appointment. And by adding five minutes, doing some interviews, doing the other parts of their, uh, you know, triage side of things, they cut, they were able to cut their, their EKGs in half because people's blood pressure just went down because they weren't so nervous when they walked into the doctor's office. And they were saying, you know, this was because of roadmap, because we were able to sit and take the time and really look at our internal data, but also listen to the patients when the patient said, well, I kind of get a little nervous when I come in here. And this makes me a little worked up a little bit that they switched that process. And I think that there is something to be learned by Um, that story, because I know when I walk into my doctor's office, you got to get on the scale and then you got to take your blood pressure right away. First off, who wants to get on the scale? None (laughs) of us. And then already your blood pressure's up because you're on the scale. And the next thing you do, they take your blood pressure and they always have to come back to me later and take my blood pressure. So this clinic's just eliminated that right in from the beginning. And that was because it was a data measure and they can show a dramatic difference, but also a learning objective that can be scalable across all of the providers across. And that's the point of those outcome metrics. You know, we've been, I mean, for two decades, we've been trying to help organizations understand that program outcome measurement is not for grant compliance for United Way. (laughs) It's Uh -uh. to make your programs better. 
it's actually improve what you're doing because you're measuring it and seeing, oh, wow, we, this connects to this. We didn't realize this until we started measuring it and thinking about frameworks. So um, I love that. So the, the idea is, you know, again, 1400 clinics across the country, you would love to have all 1400 of these measuring all 15 of these things and have this amazing national um, repository of uh, quality data and outcomes data for policy making and everything else, but you got to start somewhere because measuring is very challenging. So you started with, I think, 50 pilot clinics, one of which is Susie's clinic in Greenville. What have you, what are the, some of the early findings so far? What's the status of the, of the program now with the pilot clinics? What are they teaching us? And, um, and then maybe what's the next step and when will this get expanded beyond pilots? Well, we're in the process of expanding right now. So we're in the process of adding another 23 clinics at this point in time to um, the program. Uh, ideally, of course, that's our big, hairy, audacious goal, you know, 1400 clinics measuring this. Um, I think we're recognizing it won't be 15 uh, additional measures. Um, I think we'll narrow that down as we started seeing that clinics, they, they, you know, the majority of the clinics used four or five, they all reported on four or five. So I think we'll, we'll, we'll keep 15, but we'll know which ones will pop up to the top. I think that we have definitely learned that, um, data input at the clinic level needs, um, there's a streamlining and training that needed to take place there um, so that data in gives good data out. Um, as we look at that, I think also recognizing uh, reporting capabilities of electronic health records are not the same um, across all of the EHRs that we utilize. So how do we either develop programs with those EHRs uh, that they're, that we have the same reporting to go into the repository or um, how do we develop training programs uh, through some of the pilot clinics who have been so great to to show some of those issues as well? I think that the lesson those are some of the lessons learned that we had. Um, additionally, I think it cannot. I would be remiss if I didn't uh, mention this tiny uh, global pandemic that <laughs> happened in the middle of this um, data collection side, which also leads me to a conversation about equity in general that I think has been highlighted for all of us. Uh, there was this almost hidden taboo prior to COVID where it was, she has to go to the free clinic or I uninsured, I'm uninsured and people didn't talk about it. It was, you know, we didn't want to mention it. And then COVID happened and the great resignation happened, but then people lost their jobs and then they became uninsured. And then there was an expansion of Medicaid. And I bring this all up because in on May 11th, all of this ends the public health emergency ends and the Medicaid expansion ends. So it's it's unwinding depending on the state you're in. And so when we talk about where, what other processes and lessons learned we had is that these clinics that stayed part of this process not only continued measuring what they were measuring with a roadmap because that was part of the work they were doing, they saw an influx of patients and a decrease of volunteers because many of our volunteers were over that 60-year-old age. And now we're preparing for another onslaught of patients that will be coming to us, anywhere from four to 10 million patients will be uninsured come in May, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation. And those people will remain uninsured for another 12 months. So when you're asking what a learning lesson is, I think that ideally free and charitable clinics, as I would argue, most nonprofits are very flexible in nature, but also they're very tenacious as they look at some of the problems. So I think I the challenge um, COVID, 
the concern of now more uninsured, those are some challenges that we're looking at right now. Also opportunities, obviously, but also I think um, electronic health records, how they're used and what they report out, and then data in, data out for us were all the lessons that, that were learned, but we're still adding new clinics as we move forward through this process. And I think something else that has been really exceptional during roadmap is the willingness of these clinics to join learning collaboratives and learn and teach each other as part of this. And then as well, the dedication to the equity piece um, of the conversation of taking more classes on equity and what does equity mean and how do I become a more equitable leader as I'm leading this process? What do I need to look at and what do I need to change? I feel like that is, um, there's been a lot of work in, in you know, four or five years in shifting an entire system of care and how we collect the data for the care. Hmm. Susie, what's you know, been Nicole the value? Is, yeah, Go Nicole ahead. is absolutely right on COVID. The, um, the project was ready to kick off and all ready to go. And the first year of data collection was 2020, <laughs> which obviously is going to be a wonky data year because- all bets were off as far as uh, normal operations. We lost students who went virtual. We lost a lot of retiree volunteers. It was down to our staff. Patients were hesitant. It was it was a challenging time. But going back even further to the initial conversations about trying to do this in this project, and, and I was one that was in some of those conversations of saying, you know, how do you think this would work? How do you think your colleagues would would take this? And, and I can say from a local leadership level at a free clinic, uh, please don't ask me to do any more big projects. You know, <laughs> I am just barely keeping my head above water as it is. You know, how in the world do you expect me to take this on and, and become, you know, part of um, um, a major data project? But it is important. And I think initially the discussions kind of focused on three different areas, one being why. Why are we doing this? And there was a lot of discussion and continued to be a lot of discussion. And that, and that was in the early development process of of why do we want to do this? Why do we need to collect this? Why is it important that free clinics be a part of this conversation? And then the next uh, area to discuss was in the, the um, what, what are we going to collect? And Nicole, we were in a, uh, a very contentious meeting where <laughs> there was probably 60 people in the room with 60 different opinions about what we could and should collect. Uh, but there ended up being consensus at the end of the day and, uh, you know, the, the what we should collect to show our value. And then the how, how are we going to do that? And, and the logistical differences from clinic to clinic, from a very large um, urban metropolitan free clinic with multiple systems and, and electronic health records for many years, certainly is going to look at data a little bit different than a once a week uh, rural free clinics still using paper charts. I mean, you're asking for the same information and you want it to be that consistency and the same kind of data to be valuable. Um, but the logistics of it, and again, just overwhelmed with everything going on. Uh, so it, it was, it's a, it's a challenge. That's one thing that we've learned. It's even, we knew it'd be hard and it has ended up in 
some circumstances being even harder than we thought it would be. <laughs> well, I will say but this we too. We do see the value. Well, I remember during the strategic planning process, you all broke the collaborative, the, the pilots and the leadership with uh, Loyola and AmeriCares and NAFC, um, the the group was broken into those three areas, the why, the what, and the how. You actually have work groups for each of those. That was the name of the work group. There was uh -huh. a group working on, let's make the case for why we're doing this, get down to the purpose, get down to what this is going to do for us and the aspiration. Yet another team who all they had to do was focus on, okay, well, so what is it? What will give us uh, movement forward? What will make us better clinics? What will policymakers care about? What will the patients care about? And then you had the how team going, okay, got it. Um, now how do we do all that? They probably had the hardest job. <laughs> how do we do all this? And so I, I really love that. I want to point that out. I remember those work groups being, being brought out to that. Susie, as a pilot clinic in this, what would you say specifically and tangibly you, you could say that this was a benefit for your clinic to be a part of this pilot? What has it actually done for you? Maybe just an example or two. Well, even some of the preliminary data, and we have looked now at 20 and 21, and our uh, compiling data from 2022, the initial results are showing, and, you know, again, has to all be validated and, and make sure that, that we're actually reporting on what the, what the numbers are. But it, it is looking like our patients are getting the same level of care as other preclinic settings. Um, part of the, the attraction for me was to be able to fight that stereotype, again, that somehow free clinics are less than. Wait, uh, so you, you said you're giving the same care as other free clinics. Did you mean you're giving the same care as other non-free clinics? Well, as other other, actually, for other populations in similar types of settings. Oh, okay. Uh, healthcare for um, uninsured or disadvantaged or okay. whatever. Um, you know, we want to compare to the Medicaid population. We want to compare to the Medicare population. Mm. We want to compare to the commercially insured population and say, is our patients getting the same level of care, uh, both in my clinic and in the free clinic network? across the board mm. as other populations. Okay. Um, having some of those results to say, not only is it a warm, fuzzy feel good about, you know, supporting the free clinic and, and seeing good work that's done on an individual patient level, but system-wide, when I can go to our health systems and our major hospital leadership and administration and say, look, you do not want our patients in your very costly hospital system. Um, you are already spending a lot of money on the uninsured in unnecessary hospital admissions and in avoidable emergency department stays. If they are in a free clinic setting, they are not costing you those dollars. And we now are starting to have some data that say, yes, our hypertension patients, their blood pressure is under control. Yes, our diabetes, the blood sugar is at an acceptable level where they're not in a diabetic coma. They're not getting admitted for uh, toe amputations. They're not losing their vision at the degree that you might expect in the uninsured population. Um, we are able to start to really make the case to say, yes, this is an important 
gap in the healthcare safety net, but we are starting to meet those gaps and those needs, and we can show you that we are, and that should encourage um, a more sustainability uh, for our organization as we develop more partnerships that um, allow us to continue and to grow. Mm. Um, I what I I think probably many of our listeners are would really benefit from going back and just hearing that part about the patient condition is improving. To me, that was the biggest, that was the biggest thing is it's, it's not just, oh yeah, we're here for you. Oh, you're back. You, now you need this today. Oh, <laughs> you know, it's, it is, it's a care management process. It's a continuum where you're actually improving the health of these patients their blood pressure is going down over time, which is reducing their risks of all kinds of things. Their A1C is going down over time. Their behaviors that they need to execute on are improving over time. Um, and then, of course, you mentioned process metrics, which are about quality, efficiencies, and time, and and all of that. So, I just th- to me, that's the biggest difference and shift that the free clinic network has made and can continue to make is it's one thing for us to be there and it's nice. Um, but it's another thing to know that because we are their medical care or healthcare home, we are actually com- improving the condition, the status of these individuals. I just, to me, that's the most powerful and simple way of saying it. You've got metrics and things that you're tracking that the layperson would never understand. Even if you sat here and we took the whole hour you describing it to us, but just that, just that one, that one element of it. Let me ask you uh, this question and both of you can answer this really. I think from both of your perspectives, it would be interesting. What are you learning about leadership during this work? You mentioned a contentious meeting of, you know, the group just trying to, just trying to figure out, oh, well, what do we need to measure and why does this need to be one of the, the 15 metrics? But I mean, that's just one, that's one small um, incident. This is a process where, and and I happen to, to know this, this isn't Nicole sitting up on her NAFC throne saying, this is what ye shall measure. Um, this is a, this is truly a grassroots. You guys are figuring this out together and that takes distributed leadership and it takes a lot of different challenges that command and control doesn't provide. Um, what are you learning about leadership through this process? Well, for me, I've learned to uh, be quiet. I think that is something that, as you said, this is not a a dictate from the NAFC, but I also have learned that uh, through processes that um, a pandemic, best laid plans, any, 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 uh, what are those things you want to say, sayings you want to say, make plans and God laughs, all of them fit in this situation. But I also think it's really imperative for a leader to um, be quiet and listen to what the concerns, opportunities, challenges, and then make an effort and then make some decisions based on that to recognize that um, sometimes what you think is going to come out of this data measure or this story you want to tell um, and the way you want to do it may not be the best way. And that in that meeting, I will say the reason we were it was very contentious and there were 60 different opinions. And I would I couldn't even go to the ladies room without someone stopping me in the ladies room, telling me what they wanted to say. Um, And instead of 
coming to a place where I just said, this is the way it's going to be done. I learned to sit and listen and take notes and be able to be able to communicate back to the person that I actually heard them. So saying to someone, what I heard you say was, is that correct? And then being able to, con- you know, ha- build that sense of trust that people would trust me to bring it to the bigger group. And throughout this process, I have really fallen into the role of the person that people call when they don't, they they are nervous or they're scared or they're um, confused or they don't like something, whatever it may work. Because I think that for me, it just learned be quiet, repeat back what people have said and then help move those processes forward and be as honest as possible if you can't make those changes. Don't don't dance around the bush, just say, this is where we are. How does that sit with you and how can we make it work? So I guess it's communication, but more being quiet and an active listener, strengthening that muscle for me through this process has really made a difference in making this program be something that Susie can use to bring to her hospital system that is helpful and useful. And we are changing the health of lives of, of patients, not just sticking rigidly in the, what we said we do the first day of this program. Wow. That's powerful. I think at the local level, um, the danger is, okay, Susie's been to another national meeting or another <laughs> state meeting, and she's bringing home this idea. A shiny new that object. Means. That means, that means more work for us. <laughs> So I, I think as, as a leader of, of our organization, and we have 22 staff, um, part-time and full-time, and then a, another couple of hundred volunteers that are ultimately involved in this, whether they like it or not, um, the, that challenge of being able to make it part of what we do and why we do it, not just this is, you know, this is like you say, the new shiny object, new shiny toy. Um, Our staff that works here probably could make a lot more money working in the health system or working in private practice. Um, They want to be here. They want to make a difference in people's lives. Volunteers obviously are volunteers. They choose to come to our clinic. They choose to have a rotation once a week, once a month to come see our patients that they know can't afford to pay them. Uh, Ultimately, making sure that, that the leadership is provided so that those staff and volunteer feel this is important, this is why we do what we do, and this is going to help us do it better because we do ultimately care about the patient and the patient getting fair and equitable care, reducing some of those disparities that, that you know, there's, there's a lot of roadblocks in front of our patients and, and trying to figure out how we can do what we can do to to lessen some of those so that there aren't some of these differences in gender and ethnicity and language and transportation and and geography. Um, That's the local challenge of of saying we've got a lot on our plates and, and we're trying to do a lot, but this is important and why it should be incorporated into every single thing we do every single day. Well, maybe we should have led with all this because that, these, these leadership lessons are the ones that are so powerful and I, these are just so great. Um, let me, we're going to wind this down. Boy, we could go on and on. We barely, we barely dug into uh, any of this really, but the roadmap to health equity, I, I just, I love the project. I'm um, excited and anxious to see the next iteration of it and 
taking it to scale and what that looks like. And um, I just applaud you both for your work and the whole network for your participation in this. And, um, you know, it tells me for our listeners who aren't free clinics and are like, you know, why is this, why is this relevant for me? If you're leading a nonprofit, what this is saying is get better, be bold, ask a lot of yourselves, your clients deserve it. Um, go beyond charity and track your performance on your mission, which is exactly what you're doing. So I just, I appreciate what you're doing. I think it does more than just lift the free clinic network. I think it, this is, this is the kind of thing that the social sector really needs to, to look at and, and embrace in terms of a process. I'd like to hear from each of you. There's a couple of questions I like to ask all my guests. And the first one is, tell me about a leader in your life that comes to mind as a person who's had tremendous impact on your leadership point of view and why. Either, either one of you can go first on this one. I'll let you fight over it. Susie, you go ahead. Well, okay. I will say, I'd like to say my path to uh, nonprofit leadership, if you'd asked me what I end up being when I grow up, it, it would have never been leading a healthcare charity. Um, my degree is, undergraduate degree is in radio and television with a minor in journalism. So uh, it is not the natural progression to run a health clinic, but moving into the United Way system and then on to, to the free clinic. When I became the uh, executive director at the, free, at the uh, United Way in El Dorado, Arkansas, a small southern Arkansas town, not too far from where you you were in Shreveport there, No, no, I've been to El Dorado many times. I know. <laughs> I heard them say on the news today or on the weather, El Dorado, and I oh. thought, no, 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 yeah. El Dorado. Uh, but anyway, one of the first um, leaders, and she became a mentor that I worked with, was Alice Thacker. Oh, yeah. She was the regional United Way of America director based out of Dallas. And I didn't have a lot of confidence that I knew what I was doing yet. I mean, they could teach me the United Way method and how to do the campaigns and how to do all this. But I didn't have that um, confidence that I was going to be successful. And Alice really, I think, showed me what a successful, dynamic female leader could do the value of sharing and networking i think my work with united way definitely impacted my involvement and my desire to see the free clinic system develop that kind of of um, association and network to be able to share <clears throat> but alice i think was was very instrumental <clears throat> in helping to develop the confidence to be able to say I can do this, I can make a difference, and I can lead a group toward a common mission. Boy, I can really hear, I can really see Alice doing that. As I remember Alice, and she was, um, yes, she her role was to play that representative at a regional level, but she played it, I mean, she gave, she was so accessible. I mean, I mm -hmm. think, you know, um, the confidence that you can do it, I, I see that, I remember that. That's a really great example. Nicole, what about you? Who comes to mind? Well, I'm stuck because I've been blessed to have so many um, mentors in this field. But I would say that um, Eileen Howard Boone was the head of the CVS Health Foundation. And uh, I would say that in my, my professional career, when I sat down to meet with her in 2000 and 
say 13, 14, um, was the time where I watched a woman in power who had the, I mean, she was writing millions of dollars of checks. And her first question was, um, why, why would I pick you out of everyone? At why would I pick the NAFC out of everyone? And spending time with her and watching how she could command a room, watching how she made everyone feel comfortable when she was around her. But the things that she helped instill on me was, Nicole, you're much smarter than you think you are. You, you, you know this. You, um, you, I, I didn't come from a free clinic background when I started this job. And trust me, there was lots of opinions about that when I started this job. There were half that thought I should have been a free clinic person and half the people who thought, oh, you ran associations, that's fantastic. And I think for me, I always sat there a bit and uh, thought I didn't know that. So I think having a strong female leader like Eileen, she really broke it down for me, which was know your facts, practice your message look them in the eye and give them a really great handshake when you walk in the room and never turn your back on anybody. You'll mm. always need someone when you're walking up the, the ladder. And please remember every single person. I think she just changed the thought process along with, at that time, Sherry Wood was one of our um, mentors and leaders of the board. And I think between an outside influence of Eileen from a foundation and inside influence of Sherry saying, you can do this, you can change, you've got the leadership. And do you know when you're standing on a stage, those people are looking at you to help them understand what's going on, helped me shift the NAFC into a process of let's collect that data. Let's not just tell that story because data is a story and how we do that. But really that look them in the eye and shake and shake their hands and and never walk with your head down. We're all where the good lessons for me as a leader. Wow. So both of you have that in common that this leader, um, just, just telling you, 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 you can do that. You've got this believe, believe in yourself really is the message here. It's amazing how we have to be told that and how powerful it is when someone of influence tells us that you go, wait, if they say that, Maybe there's something to it. I love it. Last question for each of you again. Um, if you had 15 seconds and a megaphone to talk to all the leaders of the world, what's the number one thing you would say leaders need to remember? Authenticity. Mm. Be authentic in who you are and what you're doing. Please be the person that you are because that instills trust. That allows your your team members and people around you to know that you're going to do what you say and say what you do, and that they have the right to say to you, this doesn't align with my morals and my values, and it's not who I need to be. And so when you're authentic and you are, whether that's vulnerable or transparent or a great communicator, and hopefully all of them, um, when you're authentically who you are, you allow others to be that with you and you can grow. Wow. Beat that, Susie. I have to say, well, I have to say, Nicole is about one of the most authentic people that <laughs> I know, and, and we have, have been colleagues and friends for a very long time, mm. and, and I thank the world of her. I, I think in just a few words, I would say live the mission. Not only say the words, not only mm. do the deeds, not only um, believe in the mission, but really live the mission, and that's where after many, many years, the passion is still there, you know, because I see everyday patients and I see everyday volunteers um, that believe in what we do. And if I can help make that happen, that's what it's about, you know, being able to really live that mission. 
Wow. I tell people, you've heard me say this, Susie, it's more important to know your mission than it is to know your mission statement. <laughs> like we remember the words and we go, oh, who, who out there knows our mission statement? Um, but the real, the real key is, do you know your mission? Do you know your charge down in the heart? So I really appreciate that. Ladies, thank you both. I, I want to tell our listeners, if you want to learn more about either of these organizations, uh, the Greenville Free Clinic is, that's the website, greenvillefreeclinic.org. And for the National Association, it's nafcclinics.org. We'll have the links on our podcast page. And uh, ladies, uh, just keep up the great work. Thank you for what you do. We know that it's underpaid and underappreciated and underhighlighted, but you're changing all that. And um, we, we just appreciate it. Thanks for coming on the show. Folks, um, you got the message. Be better. Do more. Keep pushing. Lead on.